Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. Today, we'll be offering you one of our encore episodes from a previous season. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode next time. Hello, everybody. This is John Simon. I'm here with Eric Veith, and we're joined once again by Erica Slater, an attorney here at the Simon Law Firm. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on experts. I think the last time we talked about selecting an expert, finding an expert, in this session, we're going to talk about something a little bit different, but just as important, and that is preparing your expert for deposition. I think one of the most critical times in the case are two things. One is the deposition of your client, and the other is the deposition of your expert. And and that goes both ways. That goes on the defense side, on the plaintiff side. It's really critical because a lot of times, I mean, if your client says something or defense corporate rep admits to something, they bought it. That's it. That issue's removed from the case. Client, at least on our end, can be sort of forgiven because, you know, they're not a pro at this. And, and it's most often, hopefully for them, it's the first time they're giving a deposition. But not with experts. These are their professionals. They are giving opinions. They can actually evaluate information and evidence in the case and give opinions. And if your expert gives an opinion in the case adverse to you, you're stuck with it. You bought it. And so I don't think you can't spend enough time preparing your expert for deposition. Knowing the file, uh, having the materials that they need, knowing what the issues are, that's a given. What I want to talk about today are some things beyond the substantive issues in the case, sort of like collateral attacks on your expert. And these are things that have come up during the years where I've used these with other, the other side's experts, and, and my own experts have been questioned on these issues. And what I call these are issues that are 100% preventable with proper preparation. And these are all things I've seen dozens and dozens of times in experts' depositions. And I just want to run through them because I, I think with proper preparation, these should never happen. I call them in our office self-inflicted wounds. First, your experts should know who the parties are in the case, obviously. And I, I go over with, the, with my expert not just the parties and the theories against each of the defendants in the case, but I give them a little background on who the attorneys are, what to expect from the attorney. Yeah, and I would also add to that that I never point out to the expert what I think those attorneys' weaknesses are, if you will. I always tell them what I believe the opposing counsel's strengths are because I never want my expert to underestimate the other attorney that's going to be cross-examining them. I may want to share that opinion once in a while, but I keep it to myself, so I don't regret that later. I think that's it's appropriate to tell your expert to expect the worst, and then um, it'll be okay. I, I think that's, a, that's what we all do all the time as trial lawyers, that we prepare for the worst, and then it's not usually that bad. So when you tell the expert, Listen very closely to the questions because sometimes they will try to sneak something in. Make sure you listen to where you really understand what they're going to ask, what they are asking you. It may be that the, the questions are straightforward. 
but you're prepared for that. Yeah. And in the type of cases that we handle, we do see a lot of the same opposing counsel and we know their styles and we know what type of approach they may take or maybe even a line of questioning we expect from them. So those kinds of things are really important to share with your expert. If you have an expert who's going to be deposed, I can promise you this issue will come up. One of the things that is asked, and you need to ask it when you're deposing an expert, is what materials were you provided? And what's going to happen, there's, there's every time there's something, whether it's a deposition or part of a medical record or who knows, every expert isn't always provided with every single piece of paper in every case, nor should they be, but the other side makes a big deal out of it. So you weren't given Dr. Smith's deposition. Mr. Simon didn't give you that deposition. Did you ask for that deposition? Did you know that deposition was, was taken? And so what do you do to keep that from happening? And obviously there's two sides of this. You don't want to give your expert a bunch of stuff that she doesn't need to give her opinions in the case. But on the flip side, you don't want to be accused of holding something back or you picking out what's relevant or not. What, what do you guys think of that? This is especially important in a video deposition that you don't want the expert looking like they're trying to remember what they were provided, fishing through their file. It's really good to have an expert be prepared with a list of the things that they were provided and when. So they can give that answer promptly and confidently and look good doing it. When the expert comes for deposition in my office, I will have a conference room literally with every deposition, every medical record, every document that's been produced, even though the expert doesn't need to review all of them for whatever they're testifying about, but I will allow the expert to go into that conference room for two, three hours, a half a day, whatever, and look through everything so that when they're asked in the deposition, what did you review? They can say the file. Can you be more specific? Yeah, go to the next room and look at what's what's in there. But the bottom line here is you need to make absolutely certain that whatever relevant materials there are that your experts should look at that they've got them. And I've, I've had depositions where it's glaring. I mean, there's something very important and the other side's expert wasn't provided with that. And, you know, a lot of times it's something that's not so good for them. And it's even worse if they don't know about it because then they're sort of blindsided. So make sure that you have provided your expert with all the materials that the expert needs to defend, to give their opinions and defend them. We take a lot of depositions of experts that are out of town by video conference. And the defense attorneys always know that we're asking for certain file materials. I let them know ahead of time that we're going to require those materials to be transmitted to us before the deposition's going to start. And I don't start my deposition until I have those things in front of me. Everybody says like, oh, yeah, I'll get you the invoices and correspondence and stuff at a break and things like that. But for the most part, I want to mark things before, go through their file before. So when I'm deposing an opposing expert, I can be organized and go through things in the order that I want to instead of piecemeal. When I have a deposition, what I will do in every case is ask two, three days, maybe even a week before the deposition, I'll send, shoot an email to opposing attorney asking for any materials that are going to be presented for the first time at the deposition, not stuff I already have in the case, but any reports, any articles, literature, or just anything we don't already have the expert is going to rely on. And I've had cases where literally hundreds or maybe thousands of documents are dumped on us the, the day of the deposition, and we've already sent an email a week before saying we need these documents. So what I do now is in the same email, I explain that the reason that I want these materials well in advance of the deposition 
is so that I'm not inconveniencing opposing counsel or their witness, because if they are produced at the morning of the deposition, it will result in a significant delay in the start time for the deposition because we need to review the documents. That's a good practice to not only request the documents, but to let them know if you dump a bunch of stuff on us the morning of the deposition, it ain't starting on time. And we may take two, three, four hours to review them. At your cost. Yeah, right. And from my point of view, I'm not being rushed into starting to question the witness without having the benefit of having reviewed the documents that they produced. So but anyway, the, the moral of the story here is whatever materials you have of your expert, get them to the other side as soon as you can, have them organized, have them laid out, and certainly you can expect the same thing in return. Next point, and, and this is something... Very simple, but very important. Let me give you the example of a medical malpractice case, standard of care. Everybody is, everybody's aware of that, what the standard of care is. The expert in your case, your liability expert, is going to be giving opinions based upon the appropriate standard of care. That standard of care generally is the same from state to state, but what I do is I give my expert in a med mal case, my liability expert, the actual jury instruction, the jury instruction that sets forth what the legal standard of care is in Missouri. They have it with them. They have it in their file. And they're going to be asked, you're giving us opinion today that my client didn't preach the standard of care. What is the standard of care? And I've seen cases where, where experts who aren't prepared start fumbling and they don't know what the exact words are. And it really cuts into their credibility. Again, it's really something very simple. It's in a jury instruction. It's set forth. Just give it to them, have it, so they have a copy of it on their end in their file. The other thing that's related to that is in Missouri, physicians give opinions based upon what we call a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And it's the level of their conviction or the level of what they need to get to to actually call it an opinion, to formulate an opinion. And in Missouri, reasonable degree of medical certainty means more likely than not. It's nothing you need to put in writing, but explain that to your expert at the get-go. At the beginning, when you retain them, uh, when they're beginning to formulate their opinions, they should already know that, but also remind them of that before the deposition so that when they get in the deposition, they're pressed on the opinion and they're being attacked, whether it be the foundation or the substance of it. It doesn't need to be absolute. It doesn't need to be scientific certainty. It doesn't need to be 100%, but let your expert know it is simply your opinion based upon what is more likely true than not. But that is certainly something I think you need to talk to your expert about in the beginning and also before the deposition. I always make the distinction in preparing experts about we want them to testify to what is probable, not possible. Often we cross-examine experts and our experts are cross-examined by asking, well, that's possible, but we don't know if that happened here. And some people can fall into that trap. So I really make that distinction about a possibility is not more likely than not. A probability is not an absolute, but certainly meets the standard of more likely than not. Another important issue is not disqualifying yourself. And by that, I mean, especially with experts who have not testified, maybe it's their, maybe it's their first time or they've, they've done it uh, just a couple times, not the folks who do it for a living. But the standard in Missouri and in most states is fairly broad. And I think you could describe it as subject matter or knowledge of a subject matter beyond what a normal everyday person would, would have. 
and I keep getting back to the medical negligence context, if you have a physician that's working in pediatrics or emergency room medicine, I can't conceive of an issue in that setting that they wouldn't be qualified to address or, or testify about. And yet, sometimes when, when pressed and the attorney asking the question changes voice inflection and are you saying you're an expert on this and you're not telling us that you're an expert on this, and sometimes a witness might get intimidated and start backing off a little bit and you got you to gotta go over that with them. You are an expert. This is your area of expertise. If somebody asks you, are you an expert on this issue? The answer is yes, because if, it, if that's your area of practice, you are an expert. Just to bolster them so that they don't read more into this, quote, expert designation than they need to. Yeah, and with doctors especially, they get so, I feel that most get sidetracked by if they're a podiatrist and someone asks them a question about a cardiac matter, they say, no, 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 I can't say anything about the heart. They are a medical physician who is trained in medical school, which is a heck of a lot more education than most of our jurors have. So as far as general medicine, physicians may specialize in a certain area, but it's very important to remind them that if they have knowledge by training, experience, skill, all those things that are in the rule, that they are qualified in court to discuss that and have an opinion on it that is informed. The next issue is situations where you'll hear the questioning start out like this. So what else do you need? What else would you like to see? What other questions would you like to have answered? What other testing would you like to see done? Did you ask Mr. Simon to do that testing? And and the purpose of all of this, as you've already guessed, is they want to try to say, well, you don't have enough information to formulate your opinion. Now, I think that's something you got to cover with the expert. Look, do you have enough information to give the opinions you are giving in this case? Yes. If they, if they don't, you need to get them more information. But at least at the time of the deposition, they need to be prepared to say, well, sure, I guess if information is available, I'd like to look at it. But I have enough information at this point to give the opinions that I'm giving. That's what this is all about. What are your opinions? Have you thought it through? Is this based upon your experience? Are you confident that these are what you say they are, that they are true, then the expert can come in and not feel like they got to give it away in the deposition. Absolutely. The end of the day, the opinion is either theirs or not. And you really have to remind them that it's their opinion. It's, it's not the attorney's opinion. It's their opinion. And, and more specifically, you really don't want lawyers putting words in your mouth. And that's so important. I tell my expert, you, you've, you've looked at everything, you, sp- you spent the time you needed to spend, nobody's pushing you or forcing you, this is your opinion, you're able to support it, you believe in it. So if it's your opinion, state it the way you want to state it. Next on the list is similar, stand your ground. The whole purpose of a deposition, an expert's deposition, is an opportunity for the other side to, to undermine the opinion, to get the expert off of the opinion, to get them to back down from the opinion. That's what's going to happen at the deposition. You don't know exactly what the approach is going to be, whether it's the information you relied on, whether the information was reliable, whether it's their credibility, their training, their background, their education. If you've done things right, you know, a lot of time, energy, and effort and resources have been spent to get to that point. Any questions that could be answered or answered, and it's a big deal. you got to let the expert know, look, stick with your opinion, defend your opinion. 
Yeah. And, you know, in a perfect world, all of the experts that we hire to testify in our cases would present confidently and teach the jury perfectly and things like that. But in reality, the experts that we seek out in a lot of cases are involved in the case because they have an expertise in the specific issue that is at issue in the case, as opposed to having a skill for testifying in front of a jury. So I see a lot of the preparation, depending on the character and demeanor of your expert, as really building them up and giving them the confidence and making sure that they understand where their leeway is and help them develop that confidence in their opinions and and build them up a little bit. I mean, I think it's very important the same way we work with our clients before their deposition. It's very important that they go in feeling confident, feeling prepared for cross-examination and knowing what to expect. So in that regard, sometimes those styles of preparing that person are not that different. Erica, I think confidence is a result of preparation. Right. The more prepared the expert is. For all of us. <laughs> for, for all of us, right. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's it's really the great equalizer. You could be a, a two-year lawyer or a 25-year lawyer. You put in the preparation and you know the case, you know the facts, you know the law. There's nothing stopping you. There's, no, there's nothing better to boost your confidence than putting in the time to properly prepare, to know what you're talking about, to know, to, to be able to anticipate what's coming. And it's the same way with experts. If you have an expert coming in and they didn't really look at everything or they're not very knowledgeable about the facts of the case, that's going to end up bad for you. That's going to end up being a disaster. Or they're just a person who's easily intimidated by an extremely skilled trial attorney who is using things like voice inflection or leaning across the table. Someone can feel like they're accused. So preparing them for that situation and making sure that they don't crumble under intimidation is important. Erica, that, that's one of the most important points of our whole podcast today, I think, and that is the experts, especially the ones that don't do this for a living, they're not used to the, the process, and we are. And when you said easily intimidated, that does have an effect. It really does. Sure. You can meet with the expert, and they're very forceful and confident in their opinion. And just because of the intimidation factor in the deposition with a skilled attorney questioning them and, and the change of the voice inflection, making them sound like they don't know what they're talking about or that's outrageous or that's silly. And I've had that happen before where the expert starts backing up a little bit. And you're like, wait, hold on a second. So another issue that is very important that comes up a lot is the expert putting things in writing, whether it's a report or notes. And in Missouri, whatever an expert puts in writing, notes, comments, drafts of reports, they are discoverable. If they're in writing, we turn them over. If there's notes, whatever it is. And and that's what everybody should do and you need to do. And so I always, from, from the very beginning, when I retain an expert, I let them know that. And I say, just be aware that anything that you put in writing is discoverable. And, and the reason I say that is in the beginning of the case, when they haven't reviewed everything, they're still in the process of formulating their opinions. They may have questions. If you're reading through a deposition, you're reading through some medical records, you're going to be questioned about whatever notes you put down. And so you really need to be careful about what you put down and what it is you're saying. Maybe you want to wait until you've actually formulated your opinions to put them in writing. How do you guys handle that? I think that's right. Right off the bat, everything's on the record and things can be misinterpreted. A question or two in the early going and the first email or two could be interpreted and misconstrued. I mean, we're, we're all attorneys, right? We jump on those things on the other side 
we say, well, you said this in the first conversation. And then even though there's a great explanation for it, yes, I had that concern in the beginning. And then I figured out by looking at the evidence that that wasn't a consideration. Well, now you're in a mess, right? Now it's a dispute. And the best way to do this is to take it off the table. It's just that the thought process can be misconstrued by the other side. And that's not good for your client. Good point. Great way to put it. And also, if we are focusing on preventing self-inflicted wounds, it is just as important to make sure your staff understands how to interact with experts, whether it's email or anything Great else. Great point. Great and point. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've been, my stomach was in a knot if a paralegal contacted an expert and almost asked for their opinion on something, or do you need this record or something like that? Any email communication is restricted to scheduling issues at the most. And it's always very important that your staff understands the rules and and why we're asking them to communicate with experts to the extent they do in a certain way. Very well put. Anything in writing is discoverable. So you need to be very mindful before anything is put in writing. And the expert needs to know that. And, and I tell the expert, too, if you've got a question, pick up the phone. Here's my cell number. Here's the office number. Pick up the phone. Call me. We'll talk about it. Next, I suggest to my expert, if they feel comfortable, to the morning of the deposition, write out the just general topics or headings of what they're there to discuss in the deposition. And it's not a report. I make sure they're clear that it's not a report. I'm not asking them to prepare a report. I am not asking them to write out all of their opinions in detail, but just some bullet points in terms like general titles or captions of the areas of their opinions. And that helps so much. It lets the witness be a little more comfortable, but even more so, it it, it really gives the deposition a little bit more organization and focus. I agree with you entirely that if there's no report, I want the checklist because I want to make sure that if the other side doesn't ask some things, that I might, because, you know, maybe this expert is going to be used, maybe this deposition is going to be used at trial. Maybe that expert won't be, av- won't be available, something like that. So I want to make sure we at least touch each of the topics that they have opinions on. Yeah, I haven't done that a ton with my own experts that they actually produce a piece of paper with the bullet list. But I will say that every single expert I've prepared, I've made that own, my own list as we're preparing and we review it time and time again throughout our preparation. So if there are three main points or four main points, we will at the beginning review those in the middle, twice in the middle, and then again at the end. It doesn't always translate into a piece of paper in front of the expert, but it absolutely is always on my own notepad, and we're reviewing it until I'm confident that that expert is very focused on exactly the points that he or she intends to hit. And one of the things when I do use a talking points list checklist, so to speak, I make sure it's the witness's checklist. Right. Obviously, it's not my checklist. And I'll I'll do exactly what you said, Erica. I'll talk. I'll have my own list. I'll talk with the expert. These are the opinions that we've discussed. And then I will suggest to the witness, it might be a good idea for you to jot down headings of what your opinions are going to be in this case. And I let them write them down. Now, what I'll run into, too, is some lawyers will say, well, so these are your opinions. Well, and when did you write those down? Well, I wrote them down 15 minutes before the depot started. So you didn't formulate your opinions. You, you know, you waited 15 minutes before the depot to formulate. No, I formulated my opinions six months ago, eight months ago. I merely put them down to make your job a little bit easier 
in the in this deposition. You're welcome. <laughs> right. So anyway, then finally the the last item I've got on my list is: Do you question under what circumstances, when the other side has taken your expert's deposition, do you ask questions? Is there a chance that your expert won't be available for trial? That's probably the overriding concern. If there is that opportunity or that that risk, I'll walk through the opinions again, giving the expert a chance to actually say the opinions the way they want to say them. Because usually when they're cross-examined by the opposition, their testimony is chopped up. Yeah, and I don't do this 100% of the time, but I will often, as we're going through the deposition, develop a list of the main topics that we discussed as far as our experts' opinions. And I might take two or three minutes to go through and give those high level. One, I always, if this hasn't come out, I 100% always, my first question when I get to question my own expert is whether their opinions have been given to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, scientific certainty, whatever profession they have to preserve that on the record, as well as maybe give a real high level summary of the opinions that they gave. And then the opposing counsel can't come back and say, well, they never gave us notice of that opinion. Because in that quick cross-examination and summary, I may be alerting the other attorney of, hey, we will be offering an opinion in this area as well. And maybe that attorney didn't get to it. So if they don't go back and re-question that witness on that issue, then they've kind of lost their sidebar in front of the judge that we didn't give them any notice that that was something that our expert might be testifying on at trial. Great great points. And I, I agree with all of them. Obviously, if the if there's any chance the witness won't be available I'll, I'll elicit the opinions. The other thing, too, is, and, and Erica, you hit it right on the head, how many times have you been in a trial, you're at a sidebar, and you're, you're experts on the stand, and you hear, well, Your Honor, he or she didn't give that testimony or that opinion in the deposition, and your response is, well, Judge, I wasn't asking the questions. It's up to them to ask the question. They didn't ask it. I think you just avoid the whole argument. If there's an opinion that's important in your case, and the other attorney, for whatever reason, who knows, maybe they didn't get a good night's sleep or they didn't prepare or read the file or whatever, did not ask the witness about all of the opinions, absolutely at the end, I would just lay them out in a summary fashion so there's no dispute. You're, you're avoiding that issue at trial. I agree with you 100%. A classic opposing counsel question is whether their opinions were formulated in hindsight, knowing what the outcome was. Great point. Hopefully the answer to that is no. Yes. And I was just teeing it up for you, John. (laughs) So always preparing your expert for the question of now that we know what happened, your opinions are based on the fact that you know there was a bad outcome. It's very important to remember that your expert and remind them that they don't need hindsight, that the standard of care that they are describing is ongoing and applied as the defendant was doing whatever conduct they were. The standard of care existed when the surgeon was operating. It's not just based on the fact that the person had a blood out and and a stroke after the surgery. The standard of care to prevent that existed at the time, and the opinions are based on how that surgery progressed or how the conduct developed. Well, good. A lot of great points. So that's it for us on this podcast about preparing your expert for deposition. A lot of really good suggestions and points. Hopefully some of this will help you. 
and help you prevent some things that are preventable on your uh, next expert deposition. This is John Simon. I'm Eric Feith. And Erica Slater, thanks for having me. We enjoyed presenting this to you. We'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to this Encore episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time with a new episode. See you then. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.